0: Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. You could uh, literally hear the laughter and the celebration, the commotion, the the clamor, the uproar of uncivilized military men who'd been living like caged animals for 40 years. You could hear them just down the plain and across the canyon, all within earshot, men eating and drinking and being merry, for tomorrow they could, in fact, die. It was the heaviness and the uncertainty of that situation. The night before an epic battle where we find Joshua pacing the wall, Pacing the city that he was, he was going to launch an attack on the next day. And he had just one more opportunity, just one chance as the men celebrated Passover to slip out, to sneak out and go assess the situation. One more opportunity to worry, one more chance to panic, one more opportunity to feel the weight of the situation. One more sleepless night. I mean, how big were those walls? How wide? And were there any cracks in them? Were there any points of entry? Anywhere he could find a place of vulnerability where he could get in and win the battle? And could he really do this? Was God even really with him? And did God call him to this in the first place? And all these thoughts are going through his head. I mean, have you ever been there? Anxious, worried, worried paralyzed with fear, as you try to live out your faith, as you try to work this thing out. I mean, have you ever faced that Jericho? The Jericho of your point of frustration. The Jericho of trying to find meaning in a meaningless job. The, the Jericho of trying to raise kids on your own when it's too difficult. The, the Jericho of saving your marriage that's on the brink. The Jericho of trying to get this thing right. I mean, have you ever Been there. And so Joshua sneaks out the night before to go assess the wall, away from the situation, away from the crowd. And in the dead of night, when people aren't supposed to be out and about, that's where we find him. He stumbles on a stranger. And that's where we're picking up our story today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Joshua chapter five. We meet Joshua here in this story. He's the new leader, the emerging one in in the, the Israelite camp. He's the one God's chosen to replace Moses, these big shoes to fill. And he's wondering if he's really got what it takes and everybody's looking at him. And he's leading these ex-slaves, ex-brickmakers, a second generation group of people into a territory that's known for its walls. And they've never experienced fighting before. And so he's nervously pacing in this three verse long little story that almost sits there unexplained. At the end of Joshua 5, and we read, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. So Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he answered. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did so. Will you pray with me? Father, in these next 25 minutes, Lord, take my tongue and speak. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Tommy and I get to work with students here, but my wife's name is Hannah. And together we have four kids named Benjamin, who's seven years old, comes up to about here. Eli, who's about five years old, comes up to about here. Anna Kate, who's about three years old, she comes up to about here. And then Grayson, who's about nine months old, and I guess at that point you start measuring in length. She comes to about... Right there. And recently I found out that my wife is a Jedi. And I'll tell you what I mean in just a second. We were invited, like our kids were invited to participate in a wedding. They were supposed to all have a part in a wedding. And so we went to the wedding rehearsal the night before. And then there's the rehearsal dinner. And so we're tucked away in this Mexican restaurant where they give us this private room. It was really nice. And they give you one of those menus where you just have like three or four different options. And my wife saw on the menu that there was an option there for chicken quesadillas. And the problem is, our kids only eat cheese quesadillas. And so the waitress comes around to take the order, and Hannah goes, hey, I see that you have chicken quesadillas here. I was wondering if we could order cheese quesadillas. And the lady thought for a minute, and she goes, you know, you're only really supposed to order what's on the menu. And I'm like, awesome. Because I'm about to get a show, like dinner and a show. It's like, this is sizing up to be a cool story. And so my wife just thinks for a second. She's like, right. But I was thinking like, if you could make chicken quesadillas, you could also make cheese quesadillas. And the lady thought for a minute. She goes, you know, you're really supposed to only order <laughs> what's on the menu. And I'm bracing now. I've got the chips. You know, I'm like, oh, this is going to be cool. I, I don't think that like this is going to work out well. And, and so Hannah, without skipping a beat, She goes, okay, great, let me get three chicken quesadillas, hold the chicken, and then she proceeds to the rest of her order, and the waitress is like, all right, you know, it takes the order. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, no way. Like, my wife is a Jedi. Like, she just did this total mind trick. And I sat there for the rest of the meal, totally impressed by her. And then somewhere in the night, that like, my being impressed by her kind of switched into this sort of, like, skepticism. You know, where I'm sitting there, and I'm going, oh, no. What if she's done that to me? And then if the rest of that night, I'm like giving her the side glare, like, you know, like, and then about a week later, you guys remember daylight savings time? Like when you get to set your clocks back, I guess, and you gain an extra hour, like that night, we put our kids to bed early and got an hour. There's like, oh, cool, we're going to get so much sleep, we're going to wake up in the morning, recharge, and then like one in the morning, this smoke detector in our bedroom, the battery was low and it just started chirping, and it was like, no, you've got to be kidding. And so we get up, you know, and it's like the smoke detector is like strategically located like six inches from another smoke detector. It's like whoever put this there thought, you know, smoke can be cunning. And so we have to have two in case the smoke misses the one or I, I don't know. So I'm up there and I'm like, I pull it down. And I'm like, oh, I got to replace the battery. Well, we don't have any batteries. And it's like one in the morning. It's like, I don't want to go to Walmart at one in the morning. And I'm, I'm frustrated and I don't know what to do. And my wife tries the Jedi mind trick. She goes, oh, do you want me to go to Walmart? (laughs) Which is code for, you need to go to Walmart. (laughs) So I'm like, no, I'm not sending you to Walmart at one in the morning. So I get in the car, and I... I drive there and I'm experiencing that slow downward spiral as you go. I'm going to Walmart at 1 in the morning and I'm probably going to get robbed in the parking lot. And then my whole life is going to... Be, and then this little device that's supposed to keep me safe and save my life and help me accomplish my goal, namely of staying alive, is now going to end to my, or lead to my demise. And I'm frustrated and I get to Walmart and I buy the battery and luckily I didn't get robbed. And I get back home and I put the new battery in it and it keeps chirping It doesn't stop. And so in this moment, I realized, well, it's six inches away from another smoke detector. So I yanked it out of the wall, and here it is right now. And guess what? It kept chirping. It wouldn't stop. So I went and I walked out and I threw it into my car where I found it this morning for this message. We're starting a message, or we're ending a message series that we've called Follow. Then what we've done with this series is tried to unpack through Scripture the strategy that the church is embracing in terms of trying to follow Jesus and reaching the world. And we've boiled down our strategy into the statement of up, in, and out. Basically, our mission statement is this. We want to help people follow Jesus. And if you're in the room and you're not a Jesus follower, we think, we're glad that you're here. We think everybody, unapologetically, your life would be better if you chose to follow Jesus. We believe that everybody was made to live in relationship with their creator, made to live in relationship with Jesus Christ. And everybody's life would be better if they lived that way, if they lived in relationship with him. And when you experience something so transformative, so life-changing, you want everybody to. To experience it. And so we've developed this strategy for helping get that message out. And it's basically this, to create environments where people are encouraged and equipped to pursue intimacy with God. That's the up portion of our our strategy. Community with insiders, that's the in portion of our strategy. And then influence with outsiders, that's the out part of our strategy. And again, because we believe that Jesus should be the center of everything. And getting that message out there is a little bit daunting, Trying to communicate Jesus to a world that so badly needs to hear about him, to everybody on the planet so that everybody can rel- live in relationship with their creator is a daunting task. And it feels a little bit like Joshua must have felt in Jericho. In this three verse long little story, like Joshua is pacing and he's frantic. He doesn't understand like what, what he can do to try to win this town. Like, he's going up against not the largest city in the known world at the time, but definitely one that's famous for its wall. It was this great walled city, and he's leading a bunch of people with no military experience whatsoever. They've been marching in the wilderness for 40 years, and he's about to try to take on Jericho, and he doesn't know how he's going to win. He doesn't know how he's supposed to pull this off, and he's so consumed with his thoughts of getting where he's trying to go, winning the day, achieving his strategy, reaching his goals, that when he comes face to face with a stranger that we meet in this story the first thing that he thinks to ask him is are you for me or against me which it took me a while to see the arrogance of this question this would be like me running out into the street and finding someone and going are you for Tommy Moore or against Tommy Moore be like what are you talking about like I don't even know Tommy Moore Like Joshua's first thing that he had, he's so consumed with what he's doing that he finds a stranger and goes, are you for me or against me? And I wonder how many times we do that same thing to God. Like we go through our lives pursuing whatever it is that we want to reach for our lives, whatever goal that we have, whatever dreams we have for ourselves, whatever we think that it might be, God has called us to. And we drive through our lives and we see Jesus by the side of the road like we meet him. It's like we've got this car and we're driving towards him. We meet him and we're like, oh, he might come in handy if I ever go through a hard time. He might come in handy in terms of me reaching my goals or reaching my dreams or pursuing my aspirations for my life. And so we pop the trunk and we throw him inside. We view him as a means to an end. And can I ask you something this morning? What would it be like if we stopped inviting Jesus into our plans? What would that look like? If we stopped inviting Jesus into our plans, if we stopped treating him like uh, this thing that we throw into our car as we're driving through life towards our own goals, and we find out in this story, by the way, as Joshua is pursuing what he thinks he's got to accomplish, we find out the stranger that he's confronted with, and he finds this out too, the stranger he's talking to is none other than Jesus himself. He was so lost in what he was doing, so focused on what he was doing, that he missed the fact that the stranger is Jesus. And we see this, I mean, every biblical commentator and student of the original language see this so plainly, like there's, there's just this uh, agreement among scholars And one way that we see this is that this person, this stranger, doesn't refuse worship. When Joshua falls on his face, the stranger actually says, take off your shoes, continue worshiping me. All throughout the Old Testament, when a person comes face to face with an angel and falls on their face, an angel's responsibility is to point worship to God. So when a person does this, they almost immediately go, no, 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 don't worship me. You're going to get me in trouble. Get up. This stranger goes, no, keep worshiping. The stranger is Jesus And that's why he responds this way. He's like, neither. I'm not for you or against you. I'm driving to my own destination. And and you wonder if this story, when Joshua finds this stranger, this Jesus on the outskirts of Jericho, I see him with his back to Joshua when Joshua runs up and approaches him as if he's looking off into the distance. And I wonder if the place that he's looking It's a place that wouldn't exist for 1,500 more years when Jesus was also on the outskirts of Jericho, this time wearing skin. See, he could pop into the Joshua story because he is not constrained by time. He stands outside of time. Colossians 1 says he was there at creation and helped create He was there before time even began. So he can pop into the story at any point along the way that he wants to. All throughout the Old Testament, we have these sightings of Jesus. As if he's pointing us to the fact that he has a destination. He has a place that he's moving. And here he's standing outside of Jericho, looking off into the distance, into a town that wouldn't exist for 1,500 more years. And maybe it was this same spot. On the outskirts of Jericho, where in Mark 10, Mark tells us, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He, he prophesies about what his goal was this whole time in coming, the destination he's driving his train to. He goes, we're going to Jerusalem, and a shiver goes down their spines. They get sick to their stomachs. This is the home of the, place who want, uh, of the people who want to kill him. And they say that to him. They're like, Jesus... If we go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. And he goes, I know. They'll condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. But three days later, I will rise. See, he says this to them on the outskirts of Jericho, which is the last city that he goes into and out of. Just a few steps on the map before Jerusalem, which would be the last city he goes into, but he would not leave it. That makes Jerusalem the destination. And what's the point? It's this, Jesus' point the whole time is that he's been moving towards redemption since the beginning of time. We don't make Jesus a part of our plan we get on board with his plan, and he has been moving towards redemption since the beginning of time. And and what do we offer in that sort of situation? Like we're not about like pursuing our goals and our dreams for his life, or bringing our things to the table, hoping we can win the battle for him. And as if to, to solidify this point for us, and this point in time where he's he's leaving Jericho, marching towards Jerusalem with the disciples on his way to securing redemption for us, we meet this blind guy named Bartimaeus. It says they. Came he came to Jericho and as he and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, this guy Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard it was Jesus, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. See, Bartimaeus knows he has nothing to offer. He just wants to be a part of Jesus' life. He just wants to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And then throwing his cloak aside, have you ever stopped and noticed that one statement? Mark's gospel is the briefest of all the gospels. When you get to the end of it, you feel like you've been running a marathon. You feel like you've just been trucking along but these editorial details that he includes are so significant. See, a cloak of a beggar in that day and age, some people said were commissioned by the government. It represents who you are, your entire identity. It also represents your livelihood. Some of these beggars could, could switch these coats into a way that when people would throw loose change at them, they could catch it and store it in there. He leaves this aside. He sheds who he used to be. His identity, his future, everything that he has, he leaves it aside. And this is why Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has healed you. And look at what he does. Immediately, he receives his sight and follows Jesus along the the road. Bartimaeus doesn't invite Jesus into his plans. He follows Jesus into his. And Jesus was moving towards redemption the whole time. Since the beginning of time, he's been moving towards redemption. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he secures it, and his strategy for out has always been through up and in. You see, so often we think that that our ability to get this message out depends on us. We feel the way that Joshua felt. And we can feel stressed out and anxious, like how do we get this message out there? But the success of this mission does not depend on our ability. Joshua learns this. The success of this mission depends on our obedience. And God was about to drive this point home to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. When he comes face to face with this stranger, he hadn't yet received the battle plan. But in Joshua 6, he has it, and he gathers the troops to tell them how they're going to take down Jericho, as if to exaggerate the, the idea that nothing he brings to the table is going to help them secure it. You imagine Joshua circling up the troops and going, all right, guys, here's the plan. God gave me the plan. We're going to go circle the city once a day, every day for six days. Like, what? Well, that's it. We're going to circle the, wait, you didn't let me finish. I mean, we're going to do it in in silence, single file. Joshua, that's a bad plan. Wait, 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 you didn't let me finish. On the seventh day, we're going to circle the city seven times. Joshua, that's the worst plan ever. Oh, he didn't let me finish. After we circle it seven times, we're going to shout at the wall. Can you imagine sharing this plan with your troops? The point that God was trying to make is, Joshua, this isn't about you or your ability. This is about me and what I'm doing. So Joshua commanded the army. It says, shout For the Lord, look at this, up. The Lord, he's the one performing the work. It's his mission. It's his destination. The Lord has given you in the city. His strategy for out has always been up and in. His strategy for getting this message out has always been up and in. Jesus says the same thing back in Mark chapter 10 as they're making their way towards Jerusalem where Jesus is going to give his life for them and he pulls them off to the side for one more locker room talk before they go to that city where he's going to be crucified, where he's going to be murdered for our sins and he goes, do you guys want this message to get out? And they're like, of course we do. And he goes, okay, here's the battle plan. A new command I give you. Love one another. Wait, Jesus, I thought this would be about our ability. No, it's about your obedience. It's about the in. I want you to love one another. As I have loved you, there's the up. So you must love one another. There's the in. By this, everyone will know there's the out. You want the message to get out? Up and in, that you're my disciples if you love one another. The success of our mission does not depend on our ability. The success of our mission depends on our obedience. And his strategy for getting this message out has always been through the up and in, to love one another. You guys, the New Testament doesn't have a whole lot to say about what we do here on Sunday mornings. Did you ever realize that? Like, There's the assumption that we're gonna come together for teaching, but nobody ever really said how long or what the format should be. There's the assumption that we'll sing, but nobody really said what style or what the format should be. There's the assumption that we'll participate in communion, but all the rest of it is 90% relational. That basically, I love how Pastor Stanley says this, that we want another one another, that we love one another, that we forgive one another, that we restore one another, accept one another, pray for one another, submit to one another, care for one another, encourage one another, basically to one another one another you guys i did a word search on this and from my count there's 65 one another's in the new testament you know how many words for just for instance for pastor how many times the word pastor appears in the new testament once this is so core to getting this message out is that we one another one another and here By this will all men know that you're my disciples. You want this relationship that you have with me upward to get out? You've got to focus on the in And leaders, it starts with us. And not just staff members, but small group leaders, teachers, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, chairs of committees, like all of us. The leadership that we offer in here has to be such a contrast to the world where we're putting each other first where the world looks in on the sort of love, the sort of contrast we have in here of putting each other first, where they go, that's so different than what we experience out here. And Jesus said it this way. He goes, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. We know how the corporate world does things. We know how the business world does things, Jesus says. The disciples are like, yeah, we're really familiar with that. Right, not so with you. What we offer in here is not supposed to be some souped-up version of what the world offers. It's supposed to be a contrast of what the world offers as they see us humbling ourselves before each other to serve one another. He goes, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And I picture him as he says this, like girding up an apron and sliding over a clay jar full of water. Because he knows they're going to need an illustration. He goes, I I know you're going to have to see what this looks like. And Jesus takes a knee in that famous upper room and begins to undo the nasty, caked up, worn down leather straps on their sandals. And the Son of God starts washing their feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter says, oh, God, no, not, not me. You can't wash my feet Jesus goes, Oh, you're struggling with this, Peter. You're going to really struggle with what's about to happen in a couple of days. I'm going to let them whip me and mock me and pull the hair out of my beard and beat me and then strip me of my clothes and gamble for them and then crucify me naked so that we could have a relationship. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus goes, you want, you want this message to get out? His strategy for out has always been up and in. You see, nothing we bring to the table contributes. This is his battle, just like we learn in Joshua 5. This is his mission. Since the beginning of time, he's been gunning for Jerusalem. He's been gunning for redemption. Out is impossible for us apart from up and in where we're dependent on him and serving one another in here. And that's how the message gets out. What do we really contribute to people's salvation anyway? You know, the New Testament, when it talks about a person being raised, moved from death to life, When it talks about somebody accepting Christ or coming to know their creator or experiencing this life that he offers, the the words that it uses over and over is going from death to life. Like somebody literally, not that you're dying in your sins, but you are dead spiritually. Like there's no life in you whatsoever. Why don't we think we can raise dead people? We can't do that. That's his job. But allowing him to work through us as we serve one another That's how the message gets out because the strategy for out has always been up and in. And when we try to bring what we bring to the table, when we try to make him a part of our life rather than getting on board with what he's doing and where he's been moving since the beginning of time, it's as silly as a little device that's supposed to to be working for you. You're suddenly driving and working for it. We work for him. And when the up is in alignment, when we're taking a knee and surrendered like Joshua becomes to him, we stop being the ones who call the shots. And we surrender to him and live in relationship with him and obey him in here. This new command of loving one another, of one anothering one another. And then this message gets out. You guys, as I was reading over this this week and kind of praying about what God would have me share this morning, it's like there were several times where it's like, God, I don't know, this sounds, this sounds a little off. And it just felt like he just over and over was going, no, it's, it's the way I work, man. You focus on me. You let me work through you. You serve one another and get the message out. I'm like, yeah. It feels like that gets that gets us a little bit out of whack in the need for us to get out. And he's like, no. It makes it even that much more important with me working through you as you get out. It just puts it into context, allowing God to work through us because there's a world out there that so badly needs to be raised to life, and we've been the ones who have been stewarded with that obligation. There's this this story that's been stuck in my head, and I'll end with this. Many of you know the story of the Titanic, this great ocean liner that sank after it hit an iceberg. I read recently that there were 3,000, more than 3,000 people on board, but they only had lifeboats enough for 1,100. 1,100 people. And so they start the way they always do, by loading the women and the children into the lifeboats. But when an ocean liner the size of the Titanic sinks, it creates such a black hole, such a gravitational pull on the surface of the water that it sucks down everything in its vicinity with it. And so there were these stories of these lifeboats that would fill with people and then push out from the wreckage. They had to push away from it. They had to get as far away from it as they could so that they didn't go down when the ship went down. And these stories began to emerge of lifeboats that would get out of that vicinity, out of that circle. And as they sat out there on the water, these people would begin singing about how great it was that they were saved from the Titanic, saved from the wreckage. But then these other stories began to emerge of other lifeboats that began to network and to work together to empty their contents into other lifeboats so that they could go back into the wreckage to pull more people from it. And I read that and I go, that's the church. That's what we've been entrusted with. That's what we've been stewarded with. Not to sit and sing about how great it is that we're saved all the time but to figure out ways to serve one another, to network with one another, to let God use us to go back into that wreckage, to pull people, to save them from the destruction of their own lives. That's why this is so important that we get this right because Jesus has been moving towards redemption since the beginning of time. Will you pray with me? Father, forgive us when we start calling the shots. When we start driving our car through our life, just totally obsessed with what we bring to the table, what we could do for you and our plans for our lives, hoping that you'll bless us in what we're already doing. Father, help us to see that that's not... That's not what you pictured here, God. You want us to fall in line the way Bartimaeus did, to join the parade the way that Bartimaeus did, and what you're doing as you move towards redemption the way you have been since the beginning of time. And the church, God, the church is the chosen method that you have chosen to rescue people from the wreckage of their own lives, God, before the ship goes down. And so, Father, my prayer as we close out this series is that you would make us that church, that you would make us a church that's in total strategic alignment with you so that we can be used by you, God, to be effective, not in advancing our agenda, but in pursuing yours as you work through us to raise back to life a broken and dying world. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information about the ministries at Ocean View, or if you'd like to speak to someone directly, you can visit our website at www.ovbc.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.